So the other night, I get a text message from someone I don't know that said, Hey Mike, it was good to see you the other night. When can we meet up again? So if you're joining us for the first time, my name is not Mike. <laughs> so if you got this text from a number you did not recognize, what would you do? All right, if you're worshiping with somebody, I want you to talk about this or just come up with an answer in your heads, okay? Would you A, text back saying something like, sorry, not Mike. Would you B, delete the message and not worry about the person trying to contact Mike? Or would you C, text back pretending to be Mike? <laughs> what would you do? Give you a second just to think about that. Got it? All right, for me, my very first impulse is to text back, saying something like, sorry, you have the wrong number. I'm not Mike. I mean, why would I do this? <laughs> well, because I'm a nice guy, I think. And I would hate someone to be mad at Mike, thinking that he never responded when it was the other person who messed up sending the message to the wrong person. Now that's my first response, my first impulse, I should say. But then my better senses take over and I simply delete the message. And I don't worry about Mike because Mike probably doesn't exist. You know this is a scam, right? <laughs> so these texts can be generated by bots programmed to flag your number as valid should you respond or by people looking to get your personal information by charming you and, and then when you do and if you do respond, making you feel important and comfortable so they can solicit personal information from you. I mean, it is, it is so easy to mis make a mistake thinking that these texts are coming from nice people. In fact, I know a handful of individuals who have lost money and even had their identities stolen because of scammers using phishing tactics like this. Now, there's nothing to be ashamed of if that's happened to you or a family member. It just means that you're a very trusting individual. So. Public service announcement time. I don't want to say that everyone you don't know is trying to scam you, but everyone you don't know is trying to scam you. At least that's how it seems. So growing up, my parents told me not to take rides or food from strangers. Those were the only two rules. That's all we had to remember as kids. How simple is that? Don't get in the car. Don't take candy from someone you don't know. Now, Emily and I have told our kids, do not take rides, do not take food, and do not click on links you do not know. Don't give out personal information. Don't chat with strangers on social media. Be careful what you post online. Essentially, the message we're telling our kids is this, don't trust anyone. But I don't like this. I mean, I want to trust people. I want to believe what people say. I just don't. Think about this for a second. How trusting are you as an individual? If it is not someone that you know personally, do you believe what people tell you? Do you give people the benefit of the doubt? I am skeptical. I do not simply give my trust to people or believe what they say without seriously questioning the content or going through a person's background so I can figure out who they are. But, but I don't like what this does to me or to us as human beings. Now, it's one thing to joke about not trusting some advertisement or even a, a suspicious text. 
But this issue has spilled over into other parts of our world that are impacting our ability to interact in life-giving ways with just anybody. So, so I want to make sure we're on the same page. So I'm going to give you just a few examples. So I have joked a lot here at Bethlehem in the past about how strangers react when they find out what I do. In fact, it is a running joke in this place how I sometimes will just say, I work for a nonprofit as a way to avoid all of the awkwardness that comes when people learn that I'm a pastor. And when I joke around like that, what you should be asking is what causes that awkwardness that leads me to say what I say. So let me tell you, it's a lack of trust in the institution and the position that I hold. And again, I don't necessarily like that, but I totally understand. When I meet someone and they hear what I do, for some, the monologue that goes on in their head from the experience that they have or for what they hear goes something like this. Oh, so you're clergy, huh? So do you molest children like all those others? Do you also hate the LGBTQ community like all those others? Are you going to judge me, tell me I'm going to hell like all those others? Chad, I, no, I just don't trust you. And the truth is that if I was you and I did not know me, well, I don't think I would trust me either. There is a lack of trust in all of our institutions. Public school teachers know this really well right now, but it goes beyond that. There's a glut of surveys being done that shows this. Even though data points might vary, all of these surveys tell the same story. It is hard to trust our neighbors. It is hard to trust our organizations. Now, naming the context in which we live out our lives and, our, and struggle to trust anyone or anything is really important because the story of our faith speaks to this. In the Bible, the word for believe is not simply a matter of logical thinking. Instead, to believe, as it's used in the Bible, as in to believe in God, as in to believe in Jesus, as in to believe in the resurrection, to believe in love, to believe in Easter, well, that word is better translated as trust. That thing that we have a really hard time doing in our culture right now. A life lived in the kingdom of God, lived in connection with God and others, is a life lived in trust. But how is that even possible? And what does that look like given the world that we live in? But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. So today is Easter. And the focus text that we read today is one of several resurrection stories across the four Gospels. Now, it's really, really important to point out that in all of the Gospels, in all of the Easter stories, skepticism, disbelief, or lack of trust, whichever term you want to use, is present. Now, not all of the disciples just automatically believe or trust the reports about Jesus' resurrection. In fact, in the biblical stories, belief or trust in the resurrection is a process. It doesn't just happen. In our reading today, some women go to perform a funeral ritual for Jesus. They're not happy. Their friend is dead. He's been executed by the state. The grief, anger, and despair they carry are incredibly heavy. But when they show up, things are not what they expect. Something has happened. It's a bizarre experience, but they receive a message that Jesus is not there, and they go back and tell Jesus' other disciples their experience, and the majority of them just don't believe them. They don't trust them, and I totally get that. It's hard to trust people. It is interesting to see how the biblical story deals with this issue of trust in the Easter stories. Eventually, Jesus' disciples do move from skepticism and fear to belief or trust. But let me start by telling you how that does not happen. Jesus' disciples do not become convinced in any Easter story by superior linguistic skills offering a convincing argument. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Uh, nor, are they, nor do they come to trust through the use of fear tactics, guilt, or shame. That's also really important to point out. Instead, what happens in almost all of the Easter stories, Jesus' disciples are invited to discover and discern for themselves the risen Christ. To come to trust, the disciples of Jesus must first encounter the resurrection. And again, in almost all of the Easter stories, the encounter of the resurrection looks similar. Jesus shows up in the ordinary places of life. In the Gospel stories, Jesus shows up while people are traveling on the road, while people are fishing, casting their nets, doing their job, laboring. Jesus shows up while people are gathered together to share a meal. In these very ordinary places, they experience the grace, peace, mercy, and hope in Jesus. And only then, only then, do they come to believe or trust. So let me tell you how I understand the impact of this story, especially in a world where trust is so limited. When we engage in what Jesus was about, and when we are welcoming to all people from all backgrounds, the risen Christ is encountered. When we replace hate and intolerance with love, the risen Christ is encountered. When we practice generosity in our life, the risen Christ is encountered. When forgiveness is given and received, the risen Christ is encountered. When someone goes out of one's way to offer support or words of encouragement or to lend a hand, the risen Christ is encountered. When we come to see the world not in terms of who is right and who is wrong, not in terms of us and them, 
but through the love of God, the risen Christ is encountered. If you've ever been the recipient of some act of kindness or forgiveness, financial support, emotional support, words of love and encouragement, you most likely know what it is to have encountered the resurrected Christ. It is powerful. It is beyond words. It happens in your everyday, normal place of life. And believing it can only come through experience. It can only come through encounter. The story of the resurrection, the story of our faith, does not make us naive. It will not remove my skepticism. There, in fact, there will be more cases of clergy sex abuse and community and school shootings. We're not done dealing with hard issues. Bad things do happen, they will happen, that call into question everything that we thought we knew. However, what the story of the resurrection does is that it acknowledges the tension between trust and skepticism, between hope and despair. It does not easily dismiss them, and thanks be to God for that. What the story of our faith, the story of Easter, the story of resurrection does is teach us that it is in the ordinary places of life that the resurrected Jesus is encountered, new life is encountered, and the kingdom of God is encountered. So, so I'll end just with one example of, of how I have experienced this. So, so just as Jesus' disciples recognized him in the sharing of a meal that they would have, I mean, I encounter the resurrected Christ each time when I'm in a faith community setting and we have communion and worship. I mean, every time we gather in this very ordinary way, in an ordinary place, and enact the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, I take notice of who is welcome at Bethlehem. In communion, people of all different ages come forward. People with all different backgrounds come. People who are sick and healthy, those who are struggling, those who are grieving, those who are happy, those who are stressed, those who have a lot of money, those who are living on social security, those who have faith, those who struggle privately with their faith. Everyone comes. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is fed. And that part of our worship service, I mean, what better way to see the kingdom of God, what that looks like, and to encounter the risen Christ. Participating in this faith community and practicing the way of Christ does not remove the skepticism that I have in life, but it does hold it in tension. It tempers it with the promise of God's love made alive in the experience that comes from this community. So let me end with a blessing of sorts for all of you who are engaging with us today. In the season of Easter, may you experience the resurrected Christ, and through that experience, may you come to believe that which seems too good to be true. And may you be blessed and transformed so that others may experience the risen Christ through you. This is the good news that we hear today on this Easter celebration. Thanks be to God for that. Amen. As a way of taking our focus text a bit deeper and applying it to your life more directly, a couple of reflection questions for you to consider. Question number one, when you think about your faith, do you assume that belief is more a matter of the head 
that is intellectual or a matter of trust that is experiential and lived? And question number two, who or what things do you trust in your life? What makes trust hard for you?